What does it mean to flourish? Philosophers, sociologists, anthropologists, economic and financial gurus, politicians, government leaders, religious leaders have all asked this question. You and I have asked this question, likely, right? What does it mean? What does it look like to flourish? I've never met a person, at least not yet, that hasn't asked this question. Now, the question is, is interesting. What's even more interesting and more fascinating are the answers to that question from people or from those fields of study I mentioned a moment ago. Generally speaking, answers, solutions, strategies are given that promote well-being, vitality, viability, success in order to achieve maximum flourishing. But here's the thing. No solution is neutral. And no strategy or tool is neutral. Just as there are no neutral solutions for flourishing, there are no neutral strategies to achieve the solution for flourishing. This is a universal reality. Solutions and strategies for better or for worse are never neutral. In the pursuit of a flourishing life, the solution matters because it has consequences. In the pursuit of a flourishing life, the strategies matter because they also have consequences that determine the direction of our lives individually and collectively. But what about the church? What about the church? What does it mean or look like to be a flourishing church? What solutions, strategies are given to the church to attain and sustain flourishing? And from the pastor to the pews or chairs, how does Scripture sufficiently address and answer these questions? Well, today we embark on a series through 1 Peter. And Lord willing, we'll be answering, oh gosh, 1 Timothy. And Lord willing, yeah, had a flashback to a year ago. We'll be embarking on a series through 1 Timothy. And Lord willing, we'll be answering and addressing these questions along our journey through this letter together. So please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. If you go to the larger book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and you hang a left, three blocks, you will safely arrive at 1 Timothy. We're going to be dwelling in chapter 1 today. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair near you. You can find this letter on page 932. When you're there at the passage, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. All right. All right, please follow along as I read 1 Timothy 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in to this letter. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit to turn the lights on in our hearts and minds. Cause us to see and behold Jesus this morning. Help us to not just be hearers of your word, but also doers of it. And Lord, I ask that the meditations of my heart and the meditations from this text would be pleasing to you. It is in you that we place our hope, our Redeemer and our rock. It's in the precious name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, before we walk through our passage this morning, we need to first establish the overall purpose of the letter and its audience. Imagine that you were living in the 60s A.D., and a, later, a letter comes to your church. You then hear the letter read aloud. You would have understood this letter as a whole, each word and line and thought connected to the last. 
each building on top of another and forming the whole letter. And as you're hearing this letter read from beginning to end, as you are listening carefully, its primary purpose becomes clear. And what is the primary purpose at the center of a whole letter of 1 Timothy? Well, we find it in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read those, read those verses. Chapter 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Brothers and sisters, a church is the household of God, a pillar of truth that confesses the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus himself and lives a Jesus-shaped life of godliness together. All of the letter of 1 Timothy kind of upholds and points to these verses. Now, if we don't start here as the purpose of the letter, then we're going to get lost in a lot of the, the doctrinal and the theological and the applicational truths within this letter. And we will, in the proverbial way, miss the forest for the trees. So we're going to be returning to this pur- purpose statement rather often in the series. But we also need to address the audience. The letter of 1 Timothy is written to a pastor. It's written to Timothy. We're going to look at his life and more about him in just a moment. But many have just flipped over 1 Timothy uh, and gone on to other books of the Bible, other letters of the Bible, um, thinking that, well, this is written to a pastor. It's not really written to the church, like, like Philippians. So what? Well, What's in it for me? Why would, I read, why would I read this? But the last four words of the letter tell us that it's written to more than just pastors. The last four words of the letter are grace be with you. And we should note that that, that word, you, is in the plural. So yes, 1 Timothy was written to a pastor, but it's also a public letter meant to be read and taught from in the context of a local church. This letter may not have been written to a church, but it is written for the church. So with that purpose and audience established, returning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, here's the main point of our passage today. It'll be up on the screen. A flourishing church protects the entrusted message of the gospel. Paul makes this this point in this passage as he writes to Timothy, who is an entrusted man with an entrusted mission to protect an entrusted message. That's our outline. An entrusted man, verses 1 and 2. An entrusted mission, verses 3 through 11. That's going to be the longer of the three points today as it really points to what the rest of the book is about. And... Uh, an entrusted message in verses 12 through 20. So let's dive in. Point one, an entrusted man, verses one and two. 
Look there with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe you are familiar with that old classic story, Black Beauty. It's a story about a wild, unbreakable horse that is radically changed after forming an unbreakable relationship with the lead character in the story. And this is similar to Paul. He was formerly Saul, a law-thumping Pharisee, a zeal, a zealous prosecutor of Christians. But Saul's unbreakable life was radically broken and turned upside down when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. On that road, divine mercy gripped his whole life. Jesus changed everything, and he changes everything for us. And on that day, on that road to Damascus, Christ killing Saul became Christ proclaiming Paul. Church killing Saul became church planting Paul. On that day, Paul was made an apostle, a messenger of Jesus, commanded to proclaim hope in him to Jews and primarily also to Gentiles. This was his mission. This was his message. We can read more about that in Acts chapters 8 and 9. Paul is kind of packing all of this in to his greeting here in this, in this one verse, these two verses. Then in verse 2, Paul reveals who he's primarily writing to, another entrusted man with the same entrusted mission and message of Jesus, and that's Timothy, his true child in the faith. What a tender and affectionate title. Now, Timothy was a half-Gentile, half-ethnic Jew. In Acts 16, we read of his humble beginnings. And it is widely understood that Timothy was likely converted under Paul's teaching of the gospel in his first missionary journey that went through his hometown of Lystra. Now, Paul is not talking down to Timothy here when he calls him child. He's not. No, this title is speaking of his deep spiritual love, his deep discipleship, his deep care for him. Paul was not biologically Timothy's father, but he was spiritually related to him. In Philippians 2, Paul confirms this when he writes, You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son, friend, and disciple in the faith. And their relationship is worth imitating. Paul's and Timothy's relationship is worth imitating. So who is your spiritual father? Who is your spiritual mother? Who are your spiritual children? Jesus encircled himself with 12 disciples, 12 spiritual sons. Paul encircled himself with men like Timothy, spiritual children. Romans 16, Phoebe is called a person, a contributor, a discipler in the church. And so, who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? Who are you regularly reading the Bible with? 
and praying with? Who are you growing in the truth of the gospel with today? I'm so encouraged by men who are doing this in in the congregation here at EBC. Men like Lynn Smith, Zach Kispert, Matthias Gildeman. I'm so thankful for women who are doing this in our life together. Mary Kispert, Christy Smith, Kristen Peterson, and many more men and women who are engaged in the work of discipleship here at EBC. I praise God for you. I thank God for you. And I praise God for this truth happening in our congregation, in our life together. Now, if you don't know where to start with this, this is a spiritual family, spiritual discipleship thing. If you don't know where to start, then you can come find me after the service, or I can, I can pair you with one of those individuals I just mentioned, and they'll get you on the, right, on the right track. We'd be happy to talk with you more about how to get more connected in this way here at EBC. At the end of the day, a flourishing Christian and a flourishing church is actively engaged in this kind of flourishing discipleship. So let's continue to grow in this here at EBC. Well, look with me at the second half of verse 2. Paul writes, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, Paul's heart is overflowing as he blesses Timothy and all readers in Christ with a three-part blessing of grace and mercy and peace. And this blessing isn't just good thoughts and vibes. You've heard that? You've received a text message like that? Yeah. Now, that's not what's happening here. Paul is not saying positive thoughts, thoughts and, and vibes, Timothy. Hope you make it through ministry because the mission and the message that's been entrusted to you is pretty heavy. It's going to be challenging. No, no. Paul here is is grounding Timothy's confidence in the gracious, merciful, peacemaking character of God. Why is this blessing here? Because Paul knows that Timothy, an entrusted man, will only accomplish the tasks set before him in his gospel ministry if the grace and mercy and peace of God is not in him, with him, and for him. And the same goes for us for the pastors in our, in our church here at EBC. Same here. Well, let's now look more closely at the mission that Timothy has been entrusted with. This brings us to point two, an entrusted mission, verses three through 11. Let me read those once again. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." 
For seven years, I worked for a large coffee company. The company had a clear mission statement, and my manager would regularly remind me of that mission statement and call us all to live on mission while working. Now, the mission statement was comprised of many different corporate goals, but it it really culminated in one overarching goal, provide excellent, excellent service by creating a third place. Provide excellent service by creating a third place. When people walked into the cafe, we were to offer extraordinary service to make sure that their coffee experience from beginning to end was grand, all while making them feel at home. The goal was to have our coffee experience be an extension of everyday life, the home, the workplace, and then their third place, the cafe. Well, shortly after I retired from coffee slinging, the mission of the company changed. I heard about this from coworkers. The company removed the comfortable seating in the third place for short-term seating. They redesigned the cafe to a horseshoe shape so that you can walk in the door, cruise through the line as fast as possible, and then circle around and then back out. Revenue went up while overall quality went down. Quality of experience anyway. And here's the lesson and connection point to 1 Timothy. With a change in mission comes a change in direction. So goes the mission, so goes the direction. So goes our doctrine, so goes our lives. And in these verses, 3 through 11, Paul gives Timothy a key part of the mission that will inevitably impact the direction of the church and whether or not it flourishes. And in this entrusted mission, he gives a personal and pastoral charge in verses 3 through 4 and then 6 through 11, and then a pastoral aim in verse 5. So a pastoral charge and a pastoral aim. First, the pastoral charge. In verse 3, Paul urges, exhorts Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Timothy was a young pastor at the Ephesians church. This is the same Ephesian church that's written to the church of Ephesus by Paul. The same one that Luke speaks of in Acts 18 and the one that Christ himself addresses in Revelation chapter 2. And what is Timothy's pastoral charge to the the church? Well, we read here that he is to confront certain persons, not to teach, verses 3 through 4, any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculation. Counterfeit doctrine was being taught in the church. This counterfeit doctrine was asceticism, which is a rigid self-discipline and a dependence, not upon God, but upon the law. It also included a kind of mysticism, a myth-following, genealogy-tracing kind of faith that deviated from truth and created an exclusivist, narrow way of salvation through the law. It also included spiritual conspiracy thinking and vain speculation. These certain persons, verse 6 have swerved away from the truth and had wandered into vain discussion. Like men and women hiking without a compass or a map, they were wandering off the trail into the woods and leading others off the path 
as well. From these verses, we find that the counterfeit teachers teaching counterfeit doctrine had risen up within the church. Verse 6 says, they wandered away, which assumes that they were a part of the flock to begin with. And Paul predicted this in Acts 20 when he said, from among your own selves, among the church will arise men and women speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Brother, sister, wandering off a doctrinally sound path isn't just a problem for the church back then. It can very much be a problem for us now. This passage ought to challenge us. We ought to ask, where am I potentially wandering off? Where am I staying on a doctrinally sound trail with the compass of word and gospel in hand? Where am I slipping off into rigid legalism, which is a works-based righteousness before God, or into a gospelless doctrine and myth-based spiritual conspiracy-type thinking? We should ask these questions regularly for the sake of our own souls. Well, we see in verse 7 that this different doctrine was connected to a wrong teaching of the law. Now, the law refers or is referred here, is the law put forth in Exodus 20, summarized in the Ten Commandments. These counterfeit teachers desired to teach the law and were teaching in a false way, a false understanding of the law and salvation through it. But they, verses 7 through 8, didn't know what they were saying about the law and were using it unlawfully. Now, Paul isn't saying that the law isn't good here. We need to be clear on this. He's not saying that the law isn't good. He is charging Timothy to confront how these teachers are using the law. Because the law has several good uses then and now. First, it convicts unbelievers of sin. It also teaches believers to continue to to go to the gospel for their hope. And it restrains evil. The law is meant to convict those who, Paul gives the list at the end of verses 9 and 10, are unholy and profane. Those that strike their fathers and mothers are murderers, are sexually immoral, are men who practice homosexuality, are enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. This is not an exclusive list of sins, nor is it meant to be, but we should note that each sin listed here is addressed by the Ten Commandments explicitly. That's intentional. Paul is making it abundantly clear how the law speaks to the sin that touches all of our lives. We may not be murderers, but maybe we've lied. We may not be practicing homosexuality, but, but maybe we've bent the rules and become a perjurer here and there. No one is exempt from this list, just as none are exempt from the law. Now, Paul makes clear in verse 9 that these teachers were unlawfully, wrongfully applying the law to the just. Now, who are the just? Well, they're Christians, those justified and saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus alone. 
this counterfeit doctrine that caused many to swerve and to wander away into darkness was a counterfeit doctrine that elevated the law over Christ. It, it elevated obedience to the law over Christ's full obedience to the law on our behalf. This false doctrine laid work upon those who are justified when Christ said, the work is done. It is finished on the cross. He said, it is finished for all who repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation, in him alone for salvation. Now, you might be thinking, I understand the gospel, Chris. I read my Bible. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is an early church problem. This ain't my problem. But this can be an issue that that is sometimes subtle and imperceptible. Whenever we rely on our own spirituality to merit God's favor. When we rest on our obedience and not on Christ's obedience. When we place our trust in our own strength and not the Lord's. When we seek salvation by any other means but Christ alone. All of these are forms of works-based religion. But brother, sister, if you're in Christ, then the work is done. There is grace upon grace in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. That's a promise. You don't live under the law. You live under Christ who fulfilled the law. Christ is your grace, your mercy, your strength, your life, your all. He is your salvation completely and ultimately. There is no other. Only Jesus. All doctrine that points to salvation outside of the work of Jesus is contrary to sound doctrine and is, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul was entrusted with and that Timothy is entrusted with. We are to steward the gospel and not the law. This is the pastoral charge in Timothy's entrusted mission. But there's also a pastoral aim here in these verses. Did you notice verse five? Look there with me real quick. Verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is key. Pastors are to confront false doctrine in the church with the aim of love. This is key. I fear that in Christianity today, we run into two extremes. First, we either confront false doctrine, the doctrinally arrogant or ignorant, with like anger and repudiate them. Instead of share the gospel with them, we repudiate them. Or what's even more common is we don't engage at all. We nod and we walk away. These are not the way. Paul is pulling forth a, a better way, a third way here. Pastors and by proxy church members are to confront unsound doctrine in love from a pure heart a heart that is examined and vigilantly watched and kept, as it says in Proverbs 4, 23, with a good conscience, a conscience that is not seared, 
but is being renewed by the Spirit and Word day by day. And a sincere faith, a faith that has been stewarded faithfully and grounded in the truth of Christ's Word and Gospel. Confronting is necessary, but confronting in love is also necessary. May we be hearers and doers of this truth. In sum, Timothy's mission His charge and aim was to, in love, protect the gospel and to protect sound doctrine by confronting counterfeit gospels and any unsound doctrine in the church that places salvation in man and not in Christ. This is Timothy's entrusted mission. Before we look more intently at the entrusted message, just a a further word here on pastors and churches. Those that teach sound and unsound doctrine will be held accountable for what they teach. Hebrews 13 and James 3 makes this very clear. Other passages as well. God will have the final word. The church is his house, made up of his people, saved by his gospel. The church belongs to no man. It only belongs to Christ. Pastors lead and feed under his rule and command. And this is why we preach Christ and him crucified from all of the scriptures here at EBC. This is why we preach the gospel message every week here at Edgewood Bible Church. This is why we preach the gospel plus nothing equals salvation for sinners. And we who preach are accountable to Christ and his word today and on the last day. But again, this letter isn't only written to pastors. It's also written to the church and for the church. And so just as we as pastors are held accountable to Christ, to sound doctrine, so are the members here at EBC. See, no book or letter of Scripture is standalone. They are all interconnected. We are to read the Bible canonically, which means we we read the Testaments together and and we weave them together into one story. They They tell one story, one message, one mission. So we should read this in in connection to Galatians, Paul's other New Testament letter. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but just write this down. Paul holds the whole church accountable for departing from the gospel. And so the protection of sound doctrine is, is, yes, the pastor's responsibility, first and foremost, yes. But it is also the responsibility of each member of each local church. This is a co-responsibility for the members at EBC. So let's stand in and on the gospel of Christ together here at EBC. Let's be a flourishing church that protects the entrusted message of the gospel together for the glory of Jesus. Well, let's now look at the third point. Look at that message. Point three the entrusted message, 12, verses 12 through 20. Look there with me. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those 
who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, imagine with me for a moment if God had a YouTube channel. What kind of videos would he post? What would be his central message? What message would kind of unite all of the content on his YouTube channel? Well, it would be the entrusted message given to Timothy here in these verses. And Paul unpacks that message and speaks to that message as he gives a personal testimony of the message in verses 12 through 14 and 16, a precise summary of the message in verse 15, a praise to the Christ of the message in verse 17, and a plea for the sake of the message in verses 18 through 20. First, Paul gives a personal testimony of this message. After encouraging Timothy to confront counterfeit gospels and unsound doctrine in the church of Ephesus, here he shows how that gospel, that gospel work from Jesus mentioned back in verse 1 and verse 11 has personally changed him and his life. Overwhelming and overflowing love and thankfulness. Paul just gushes here. He shares verse 12 of how Jesus has given him strength, has judged him faithful, and has appointed him for service to and for Jesus. Unlike the false teachers who were unfaithful and self-appointed, Paul has been set apart for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the message of the good news. Paul was, as the text says, past tense, a blasphemer, persecutor, and arrogant opponent of Jesus. He acted ignorantly in unbelief. But present tense, he also received mercy and the waterfall of grace and faith and love from Christ has overflowed to him and over him. And he has received this mercy, verse 16, so that Christ might display his, I love this word, patience toward him. Praise God that Jesus is patient and forbearing with sinners. This is the testimony of every Christian, brothers and sisters. Every testimony is a picture of of God's mercy and grace in Christ alone for sinners made saints. And Paul is giving us a model here of how to share our testimony. Did you notice that? He's giving us a model here. So Christian, how has the gospel message changed your life? When was the last time you shared how that message of the gospel has changed your life. When was the last time you shared your testimony? I would encourage you, just find two people this week in your home, workplace, family. It could be in your neighborhood, anywhere. Some random on the street. And share your testimony with them, your testimony of grace with them and how Christ has changed your life. Just as Paul does here. Second, Paul then offers a precise summary of this message that he is delighting in. Verse 15, 
Paul wants the reader to see in contrast to the narrow counterfeit gospel and unsound use of the law from these false teachers that the message entrusted to Paul and Timothy and every Christian is trustworthy, acceptance-deserving, beautiful, and gloriously simple. Paul shares the message of the gospel here in nine words. Just nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Can we just say that together? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is one of the most precise explanations of the gospel message in all of the Bible, right here in Timothy 1, right here. This is the entrusted message, and it's not for a narrow few. It's not exclusive. The gospel is to be preached and proclaimed to all men and women. It is available to all. This message is the heart of 1 Timothy. This message is the heart of a flourishing church. This message is the good news that brings true hope, true life, true flourishing to every dying person in this room. One 17th century Puritan said that he preached as a, as a dying man to dying men and women. And friends, I'm, I'm a dying man. And you are all dying men and women. Death has a 100% success rate. And so maybe you're here today in church and you're like, uh, I, I don't believe in Christ. I was kind of dragged here. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but have yet to embrace this message of the gospel that Christ came to, to save sinners like you. Maybe you've been coming to EBC for, for some time, but have not responded just to this message. Friend, you were made by God. You were made for God. And this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came down to this earth. He took on flesh. He set aside his splendor and his glory, his place in heaven. And he took on a, a robe of frail humanity and came to this earth. Then he went to a cross and he was killed. He suffered the weight of your sin and mine. and took it all upon himself. But then three days later, he got up from the dead, declaring victory over death and sin once and for all, for all who repent and believe in him for salvation alone and can have eternal life. So let me plead with you. Let me plead with you as Paul does. Repent of your sins and place your hope in, in Jesus today. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk with you about this message, about this truth of Christ crucified for sinners like you and I. Well, it's no wonder that this message just brings Paul to a, a point of praise, a point of doxology, uh, to praise to the Christ of the message there in verse 17. He bursts out in doxology. Do you notice that? It just seems kind of, it's kind of random, but it's totally not. He's responding to what the Lord has done in his life. He's responding to what the Lord has done in the gospel. This is a praise song right here. It's a praise song that has been sung by the church for a very long time. 
Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is, this is Jesus. The song is about Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is king. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is immortal. Jesus is invisible. Jesus is the only God. Jesus the king is worthy of all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our song, church, right here in 1 Timothy, right here. And this is the, the song of all who have gone before us, who are standing before the throne, who are standing before their king of kings now. This is our song of praise, here and then forevermore, brothers and sisters. So let me encourage you to memorize this verse. Pray this verse, sing this verse. You should write this verse down, put it somewhere in your house, in your car, at work, but somewhere where you can read it and meditate on, on the glory of Christ and his kingship over your life regularly. Well, Paul ends this chapter with a plea for the sake of the message, a plea. Verses 18 through 20, as he wraps up this first section of the letter, Paul pulls together the key encouragements from the previous 17 verses, and he makes a final plea. Paul says in 18, this charge of confronting counterfeit teaching, of silencing false teachers and proclaiming and protecting the message of the gospel, this charge I entrust to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may wage the good warfare. These prophecies are connected to what is said about Timothy later on in the, in the letter, in, in chapter 4, verse 14. You don't have to turn there, but you can write that down. Those prophecies are likely pointing to when Timothy was called and commissioned to be a pastor. But with those prophecies, Timothy is to wage war. That's what Paul, that's what Paul says here. To wage the good war. The, through Timothy's God-given gifts and the message of Jesus entrusted to him, he was to wage a good war against anti-gospel teaching in the church. And church, we are in the same war today. The same war that that was happening then is the same what's happening now in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our churches. We are to wage war against unsound messages of the world. Wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil with the truth, the message of the gospel. We are to fight for the sound message of salvation in Christ alone. The Reformation is not over. We're still in the midst of it. So are you fighting? Are you fighting? Are you fighting the good fight for the sake of the message of the gospel? Are you regularly in the word so that you are armed for war each day with sword and compass so that you don't swerve and wander off course? Well, in verse 20, Paul gives us two examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These men wandered off course. So and as a warning to Timothy, the church, and for us, these men listened to the siren call of unsound doctrine and living and blasphemed God. They blasphemed the gospel of God by holding to the law and not holding fast to Christ. That is the blasphemy that's spoken of here. And like a ship at sea, they were dashed on the rocks. They made shipwreck of their faith. 
They were church disciplined, handed over to Satan, and were set outside the community of the saints, the church. And there's a threefold purpose for why Paul mentions these names. First, Paul is putting flesh and bone to the reality of false doctrine and the impact it has on the soul. That's why, that's why Paul includes these names. as a warning again to Timothy, to the church. These men, second, would have also, this is another reason, would have also heard that their names were mentioned in this public letter. I want to, I want to dial in on this for a moment. Paul mentioning them by name is an act of grace. See, the goal of the church, the goal of church discipline is always restorative. It's always restorative. So this was a plea from Paul. A plea to these men to repent and to return to sound doctrine. To return to the church. Third, these men are a warning to the church to remain in the word to remain steadfast to the gospel. To verse 19, hold faith and a good conscience and to wage war against the lies around us, holding fast and staying on course for the sake of the message of the gospel. These are the three reasons why Paul mentions these by name here. God is gracious to give us this letter, brothers and sisters. God is gracious in, in giving an entrusted man like Timothy to the church. He's gracious to give us a clear and trusted mission and a clear and trusted message for our good and ultimately for the glory of Jesus. Well, in closing, we can only confront counterfeit gospels and protect the gospel if we know the message of the true gospel that we just heard. We can only wage the good war against unsound doctrine if we know the truth of sound doctrine from God's word, the word that has been entrusted to us. And we can only truly flourish as a church if we keep Jesus the center of our fellowship and nothing else. And we stand on and in the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in it. And we ask that we would know it and believe it and rest in it, live in it, and live our lives out of it. And so we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would continue to teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not to the glory and honor of Jesus, the one who is the eternal, immortal, invisible, one God. It's in his name that we pray, amen.